recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, March 21st, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. It has been some time since I had originally planned to present this series of my essays entitled Classical Records and German Origins in Podcasts. I think this probably should have been done two or maybe even three years ago. In January of 2012, I presented as a podcast the very first essay that I had written on this topic entitled Herodotus, Scythians, Persians, and Prophecy. Clifton Emmerheiser had first published that short essay in his August 2004 Watchman's Teaching Letter. So I had probably written it earlier that summer. It was inspired because, at the time, Clifton was doing a long series, perhaps four or five or even six of his monthly lessons, on the historian Herodotus and his testimony concerning the Scythians and the importance of that in relation to the prophecies in the book of Daniel. In February of 2012, I presented another of my essays in a podcast entitled Classical Records of the Origins of the Scythians, Parthians, and Related Tribes. The need to write that paper was probably also inspired by Clifton series. I must consider both of those essays, or at least the podcast versions of them, to be something of a prerequisite to understanding this German origin series which we are about to present. That is because the Scythians are indeed the direct ancestors of the Germanic tribes, of which the Parthians are one of the first truly notable subdivisions. Following those who were earlier known to the Greeks as the Chimerians. In mid-2007, in between my other biblical studies and my New Testament translations and proofreading for Clifton, I decided to write a paper about the origins of the Germanic tribes and how they had indeed come from Mesopotamia, and the dispersions of the ancient Israelites, hoping to um, fill some of the gaps left by Christian Israel identity writers who had come long before me. I remember thinking that there were a lot of diverse opinions within the Christian identity community on this topic, mostly because of the treachery of the British Israel people. But I also thought, after having read so many of the classics, that there was a very clear picture of the settlement of Europe which could be drawn from the classical records, and perhaps I could attempt to draw that picture clearly enough, even for people outside of Christian identity, 
to see it and to come to agree with the truth of our profession. The British Israel people absolutely appalled me. They still do. With their unapologetic attitude for the behavior of England in the time of its empire. Their assertions concerning not only the nature of the Germans, but also of, of the Irish and the Scots, are only propaganda, which was engineered to create a concept of an England free of any guild for oppressing its fellow white nations, all while upholding the idea, the really crazy idea, that the Jews are Judah. Incredibly, the British Israel crowd believes that they are more closely related to the alien Jews than they are to their own kindred Germans. This is perfectly exemplary of a phenomenon which we see all too often, the fabrication of history for political purposes. Clifton and I had done a podcast on this topic in 2010. And the British Israel crowd still despises us for it unto this very day. They label us as devils and beasts at the time. In truth, the British Israel crowd are only whores for Satan, without exception. So the paper on German origins that I had wanted to write, became six short papers, all written from mid-2007 through mid-2008. Their size was limited to the amount of text which Clifton could squeeze into one of his two-sided, eight-column pamphlets, maybe about 26 to 3,200 words in there. For that reason alone, the writing style of the original essays was very concise. We will attempt to rectify some of that here, but since we do not want to interrupt the continuity of the original essays as they were divided, for that reason, these presentations will not be very long. As a rebuke to the British Israel crowd, the last of those, these six essays, is subtitled, Who are the English? If you ask Clifton, he will tell you that I had promised him a seventh essay. And I must admit that it, I did promise him, promise him that. It was supposed to be titled, Who Were the Huns? But circumstances at that time had prevented me from writing it. Unfortunately, <laughs> Clifton still awaits it. And I really do hope one day to have the opportunity to fulfill his long overdue expectations. For now, however, if Yahweh God is willing... I will endeavor to present the six essays which I did finish here over the coming weeks on Christogenia Saturdays. And tonight we have the first of those essays. Classical Records and German Origins, Part 1. The nations of the Near East 
often made their monumental inscriptions and other records in multiple languages. This is to our benefit today, since such a practice has greatly assisted our understanding of the various ancient languages of the region. With the rise of classical Greece came Greek historical and geographical inquiry, which, as is apparent from their own records, began in the late 7th century B.C., the Greek writers were first acquainted with their neighbors to the east in the form of the Assyrian Empire, which had been destroyed by 612 BC. And then, even more so, did they become acquainted with their neighbors to the east with the rise of the Persian Empire, a power which was consolidated under Cyrus II by 540 BC. While there were earlier Greek historians and writers of epic poetry that were historical in nature, along with the many other poets whose works have survived, the lyric, elegaic, and bucolic poets were all quite early, the first serious prose historian whose work has survived to us, is Herodotus, who wrote nearly a hundred years after the death of Cyrus. It may be evident, therefore, that the earliest written Greek accounts concerning the East belonged to the poets, and they were influenced by the Assyrians. And those which followed later were influenced by the Persians and the Medes a people whom the Greeks called Chimerians, invaded Anatolia from the east, not from the north, from the east, in or just before the time of Homer, as attested to by Strabo, who relates that the writers of Chronicles make it plain that Homer knew the Chimerians, in that they fixed the date of the invasion of the Chimerians, either a short time before Homer, or else in Homer's own time. Geography, Book 1, Chapter 2. I'm going to give an example from a modern archaeologist named G. Kenneth Sams, who wrote an article in the... Um, November-December 2001 issue of Archaeology Odyssey entitled King Midas from Myth to Reality. And while we do not entirely agree with Sams's dating, since some of his dates we esteem are a little too early, he says in his article on Midas, <clears throat> and I quote, that in the late 8th century B.C., the historical Midas ruled the people called the Phrygians, who had migrated into Anatolia from southeastern Europe. These European settlers probably arrived during the Dark Age that followed the collapse of the Hittite Empire toward the end of the 13th century B.C. He actually says B.C.E., right? Now, this is true since the ancient historical records 
Paul say that the Phrygians had indeed come into Anatolia, modern Turkey is um, ancient Anatolia, from migrations of the Thracians. They were colonists of the Thracians. And the Thracians, Kyrus in Genesis chapter 10, inhabited that land um, north of Greece and north of Turkey, which is known for the most part today as Bulgaria, but Thrace was a little larger than modern Bulgaria. To continue with G. Kenneth Sams and his article, King Midas from Myth to Reality, the Phrygian language, though still not well understood, appears to be related to languages spoken in ancient Illyria on the northeastern coast of the Adriatic Sea and Thrace, which included parts of modern Bulgaria, Greece, and Turkey. Like the Thracians, the Phrygians used elaborately stamped pottery and buried their dead in large earthen tumuli. And we may add here that the Thracians were the prominent early mound builders in Europe. He goes on to say, the fluid of Phrygian wealth and power came in the late 8th century BCE during the reign of Midas. Phrygia's demise may also have come during the reign of Midas around 700 BCE when Gordian is believed to have been conquered and destroyed by the Cimmerians who arrived from the eastern steppes. We would set that date to be 75 or so, I'm sorry, 25 or so years later. Dating Homer. Dating Homer has always been a point of contention. By the end of this evening, hopefully we will all realize why it is important to date Homer properly. I must admit, having um, confused myself on this very issue, and we will resolve that confusion here this evening, when I tried to quote part of a book from memory presenting um, my first 1 Corinthians episode, so I was maybe 50 or 60 years off on the dating of Homer. But that's okay. I'll take that. I can make errors. Dating Homer has always been a point of contention. There is a note which is found in the Loeb Classical Library edition, Greek Iambic Poetry, page 35, at Archilochus, chapter 5, where it is related, as it is discussed by Tadian in his address to the Greeks, that Homer was a contemporary of Archilochus, the iambic poet who flourished, as Cadian dates him, in the 23rd Olympiad, which would be from 688 to 685 BC, which was said to be at the time of Digas the Lydian, 500 years after the Trojan War. We will see that Tadian is correct about that part of the equation, but not really correct exactly about the 23rd Olympiad, which is okay. <clears throat> Tadian was an early Christian apologist of the 2nd century AD. Other early sources, such as Eusebius, date the time of Archilochus to the 29th Olympiad. 
which was from 664 to 661 BC. Then there is a statement from Proclus, a Greek of the 2nd century AD, who is known to us from the 9th century scholar and church elder Photius I of Constantinople, who preserved and republished Proclus's works, who stated that Archilochus flourished in the time of Gyges, G-Y-G-E-S, the king of Lydia, who died in a battle with the Cimmerians. At first, Gyges had defeated the Cimmerians in a battle, which is generally dated to 679 BC, and he is said by some sources to have reigned until only 678 BC. However, it can be established from contemporary documentary evidence in inscriptions that Gigas lived and ruled Lydia until 644 BC. The information for, for that is um, in an article called Gigas of Lydia at Livius.org, L-I-V-I-U-S.org. There was also strong evidence that Homer made references to Gigas in his poetry, veiled references, and actually bore hatred for him. And that's explained by an article from a um, classical professor from New Jersey named Stacchini entitled Gigas in the Homeric Epics by Livio C. Stacchini. In this case, it is said with near certainty that both Archilochus and Homer flourished in the time of Gigas, and that data can be corroborated. And Gigas can be dated from about 680 down to about 644 B.C., Concerning Archilochus, the historian Herodotus corroborates this, where in the first book of his histories, he says of Gigas that Archilochus the Parian, who lived about the same time, made mention in a poem of his becoming the king of Lydia. With that information and other circumstances, George Rawlinson fixed the date of the first Chimerian invasion of Lydia to about 675 B.C., George Rawlinson being the learned translator of Herodotus, as well as a historian of many other works. Here is a short digression, because we hope to put these things in perspective later on. It was not long before 730 B.C. that the first Israelites were taken into Assyrian captivity by Tiglath-Pileser. And that's seen in one place at um, 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29. And many more Israelites were taken captive by the Assyrians over the several decades which followed. In Isaiah 66.19, written right around that same time, the prophet says, And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them, meaning the children of Israel being taken into captivity, I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Sharshis, 
Tarshish being the region of southern Spain on the Mediterranean, to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud, Pol being perhaps, it's generally esteemed to be a reference to Tiglath Pileser, to a section of Assyria, and Lud that draw the bow, and Lud is um, the Lydians of Anatolia, of which Giges was king, right? To Tubal and Javan, to the isles of Faroff that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Javan represents Iowan, the Ionian Greeks, by all accounts. The Persians even called them Yavana. And the Ionian Greeks lived on the coast of Anatolia near Lydia and also at Athens in Greece and its environs. Tubal was a tribe that lived on the Black Sea, on the coast of the Black Sea, near, um, at this time, modern Armenia. So the word of Yahweh says where he is going to send these Israelites who are take, being taken off captive to Assyria. Strabo relates that having destroyed the nation of the Phrygians, of which the famous Midas was king, just as G. Kenneth Sams had written in his article, the Chimerians overran the whole country from the Bosporus to Ionia and marched as far as Lydia and Ionia and captured Sardis. Sardis is actually one of the principal cities of the Lydians at this time in the 7th century BC. Later on, it's one of the churches, I believe, in the Revelation, the seat of one of them. This is where we believe that the Israelites had begun the fulfillment of the prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 66, since the Ionians are the Javan and the Lydians are the Shemitic Lud of Genesis chapter 10 of the Old Testament. After withdrawing from Anatolia, the Chimerians are found inhabiting the regions north and west of the Black Sea, north of Thrace, the Chimerian Bosporus, the modern Crimea retains its name from them. And Strava explains that in Geography Book 11, Chapter 2, where he says, Chimericum was in early times a city situated on a peninsula. Strabo's writing in the first century BC, so early times to him would be the fifth, sixth centuries BC. Chimericum was in early times a city situated on a peninsula, and it closed the isthmus by means of a trench and a mound. The Chimerians once possessed great power in the Bosporus, meaning the Chimerian Bosporus, and this is why it was named Chimerian Bosporus. These are the people who overran the country of those who lived in the interior on the right side of the Pontus, meaning south of the Black Sea, as far as Ionia. However, these were driven out of the region by the Scythians. 
And then the Scythians were driven out by the Greeks who founded Ponticopium and the other cities on the Bosporus. Homer, knowing of these people, later included a mention of them in his Odyssey, referring to the Chimerians. Yet the events upon which the Odyssey is based are from a much earlier period. The Trojan War ended, by all accounts, around 1185 B.C., and placing the Chimerians in that era, as the tragic poets following Homer also do, is anachronistic, and certainly an error on Homer's part, which later writers followed. We would conjecture that Homer, not knowing the origin of the Chimerians before they had invaded Anatolia, simply imagine them to have always been where they had thereafter settled. That's our assertion. Subsequent waves of nomadic tribes from Asia became familiar to the Greeks, and these were generally called by the name Scythians. Herodotus tells us that the Sacae is the name that Sake is the name which the Persians give to all Scythians. Yet later, the Greeks retain the name Sake, which was also written as Sakins by English translators. The Greeks retain the name Sake for only some of the Scythians, and they distinguished others by names such as Masagede, Aramaspi, Dahi, Asi, Tokarians, Sakarali. Various examples where all of these tribes are in one place or another identified as Scythians are found in Herodotus, Diodorus Siculus, Strabo, and other writers. While Herodotus and later writers distinguished the Chimerians from the Scythians, even though Homer never mentioned either the Scythians or the Sacae, it must be noted that these other writers all wrote long after the Greeks became acquainted with the Chimerians in the time of the Assyrians. And that's important to understand, to understand that the Chimerians are really just another tribe of the Scythians. They're Scythians that came first into Europe at the time of the Assyrians. And after the Persians had come to power in the East, where by the time that the Assyrians and their Akkadian language had faded into obscurity, and the tribes of the East were being identified by their Aramaic names. Subsequent writers from the time of Herodotus and later had identified the Scythians and Saka by those names because those were, Sake was the name that the Aramaic speakers were using for the Scythians. From Strabo's geography, from Book 11, Chapter 8, 
where after describing the peoples to the right of, as he calls them, looking, looking to the east from Greece, to the right of or south of the Black and Caspian Seas. After describing those people, he turns to describe the people that lived to the north of the Black and the Caspian Seas, of an imaginary line, which is part of the, um, part of which is the Caucasus Mountains in between those two seas. And Strabo wants to name the, the people to the north of them. So he describes them as being to the left of that line. And he says, on the left and opposite these peoples, meaning the people south of the line, are situated the Scythian or nomadic tribes, which cover the whole of the northern side. Now, the greater part of the Scythians, beginning at the Caspian Sea, are called Dahi. But for those who are situated more to the east than these are named Masagere and Sake. And actually in most of the classical descriptions of the Masagere and Sake, they're dwelling north of India in what we would call today Kazakhstan. And, and um, even a little east of that in, in the Jakartas and the Oxus River Valleys. Those situated more to the east than these are named the Masagere and Sake, whereas all the rest are given the general name of Scythians, though each people is given a separate name of its own. They are all, for the most part, nomads, but the best known of the nomads are those who took away Bactriana from the Greeks. I mean the Asi, Pasiani, Tokari, and Sakharali, who originally came from the country on the other side of the Yukartas River that had joined that of the Sake and the Sogdiani and was occupied by the Sake. And as for the Dahi, some of them are called Aparni, some Xanthi, some Pisuri, but now of these, the Aparni are situated closest to Hyrcania, and the part of the sea that borders on it, that would be the southern edge of the Caspian Sea. But the remainder extended even as far as the country that stretches parallel to Aria, and Aria would be roughly cognate with modern-day Iran and Afghanistan. In subsequent segments of this presentation, we will discuss this passage from Diodorus Siculus's Library of History, from Book 2, Chapter 43, at length. However, for now, we will only quote it in part, where Diodorus had written. But now, in turn, we shall discuss the Scythians, who inhabit the country bordering upon India, to the north of India. This people originally possessed little territory, but later, as they gradually increased in power, they seized much territory by reason of their deeds of might and their bravery and advanced their nation to great leadership and renown. At first, then, they dwelt on the Araxes River, 
Altogether, few in number and despised because of their lack of renown. But since one of their early kings was warlike and of unusual skill as a general, they acquired territory in the mountains as far as the Caucasus and in the steppes along the ocean and Lake Myotis and the rest of the country as far as the Tanais River. Now, the Araxis River is usually, in modern times, called the Aras River. It flows along or through the modern countries of Turkey, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and northern Iran into the Caspian Sea, which is east of the Black Sea. This is much of what was once known as ancient Media and Armenia. It is the river which Cyrus too had crossed to engage with the Scythians in the famous battle recorded by Herodotus, which happened near 530 BC and is said to have cost Cyrus his life. In the paragraph which follows that that, that section of his library of history, Diodorus fancifully explains the divisions of these Scythians into tribes such as Strabo had noted, such as the Pali, the Nape, the Sake, the Masigede, and the Aramaspi. Lake Myotis is the modern Sea of Azov, immediately to the north of the Black Sea, near the Crimea. The Tanais River is the modern Don, flowing into it from the north. So we see the um, territory that the Scythians conquered from an early time, or they occupied from an early time, because much of it may really have been sparsely inhabited or simply not inhabited, was from the Don River, or the immediate north of the Black Sea, which in ancient times was seen as the dividing line between Europe and Asia, even though in modern geology we moved that line pretty far east of there. It was considered the dividing line between Europe and Asia by the classical Greeks. From there, the Scythians had um, come to very quickly occupy, according to Diodorus Siculus, everything east of that, north of the Caucasus, and east of that, as far as Tibet, which is pretty far. There were... Um, great westward migrations a thousand years later from um from, from well well there were continuous westward migrations but there were mass movements in in the third fourth fifth centuries AD that um brought the Saxons and, and Goths and all the tribes that had destroyed destroyed Rome and moved into Germany from Asia. Though that's another story for another time. 
The Persians themselves did not distinguish the Chimerians from the Scythians. In the multilingual inscriptions which they left to posterity, it is evident that these peoples were one and the same. For instance, in an Akkadian, Akkadian being the language of the Assyrians, in an Akkadian inscription of the Persian king, Xerxes, there are mentioned the Amergian Chimerians and separately the Chimerians wearing pointed caps. This inscription actually survives to this day and it's translated. And a note accompanying the translation of this inscription, which appears in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, edited by James B. Pritchard, published by Princeton University Press, on page 316, informs us that in the Persian and Elamite versions of this same text, the Chimerians, which is their Assyrian name, are called Sakins or Sake. The Akkadian language was the lingua franca, meaning that it was the free language, the free tongue. It was the, the, the language of trade and diplomacy in the Near East during the earlier Assyrian and Babylonian empires. And that's even stated in ancient Near Eastern texts and explained there on pages 103 and 198. It was supplanted by Aramaic in the time of the Persian Empire, Aramaic being a form of Syriac related to Hebrew. Surely the Greeks of Homer's time were indeed familiar with the Akkadian language. I don't remember the exact citation, but I remember one of the ancient Greek histories explaining that certain diplomatic papers were written in Assyrian letters. The Greeks were certainly familiar with the Assyrian language during the time of the Assyrian Empire and probably for some time thereafter. The obvious conclusion here is that Chimerian is from the Akkadian word for these people, whom the Persians called Sake and whom the Greeks called Scythians, and that all of these names identify the same group of people, although they had divided into various sub-tribes. The first of these people to come into Europe in Assyrian times the Greeks called by the Akkadian name, Kimeroi in Greek, Kumri in Assyrian. And we will get deeper into the meanings of these names as this series progresses. Later, in Persian times, the Greeks called subsequent waves of these people 
or perhaps even some of the descendants of those first tribes, as well as those who remained in Asia by the Persian name Sake, or by the name that the Greeks had come to use, which was Scythian. The Greeks may have learned the name Scythian from the people themselves. Scythian in Greek is skusoi, that's the plural, or skusis is the singular. They may have learned that from the people themselves, since one possible etymology for the word, and the only one that makes any sense, because it's not a Greek word at all, is from the Hebrew word sakath, or tent. Sakath is very close to skusis, and that's quite plausible and very well describes the Scythian mode of life. They were nomads who lived in tents. It's also consistent with classical accounts of Scythian origins, as we shall see. This would also explain how the word Scythian appears in a fragment which is attributed to Hesiod, who was regarded by later Greeks to have been another contemporary of Homer. Yet whether the work in question was Hesiod's is problematical. Again, noting the names on this particular Akkadian inscription of the Persians of King Xerxes, where it described the Amergian Chimerians and the Chimerians wearing pointed caps. To this we must compare language used by Herodotus, who discussing certain of the nations allied with Persia during the time of Xerxes' invasion of Greece. Herodotus wrote among the allies were the Amergian Scythians, Amergian Chimerians on Xerxes' inscription, Amergian Scythians in Herodotus' account. And Herodotus also said at this, in this same passage that the sake, or skips, were clad in trousers. And had on their heads tall, stiff caps rising to a point. That's from the Histories, Book 7, Chapter 64. In a footnote in this passage, in his edition of Herodotus, George Rawlinson noted that, according to Hellanicus, the word Amergian was strictly a geographical title, Amergium being the name of the plain in which the Scythians dwelt. Comparing Herodotus' remarks to the inscription of Xerxes, there is no other plausible option but to identify the Chimerians as Sake and Scythians. It is almost as if Herodotus had been reading Xerxes' inscription as he wrote his description. Indeed, the Chimerians 
were only the earliest of the migrations of the Scythians, or Sake, into Europe. This is, this, the reasons for this, for the importance of this become manifest when we observe the records of the Cimmerians in later history. While Homer never mentions Scythians, Strabo offers a protracted, a protracted argument that he knew that Homer knew about them. Since Homer uses the epithets Hippomagi, which means mare milkers, Galactophagi, which means milk eaters, or perhaps milk fed, and Abi, meaning those living, those without a living or having a very simple lifestyle. And Strabo explains that in Geography Book 7 in Chapter 3. In places, he cites the use of these epithets for Scythians by both Aeschylus and Hesiod in an otherwise lost fragment to make his point. And those passages, the, the Scythians are referred to in that manner by Aeschylus, the tragic poet. The work in Hesiod that Strabo cites is lost. Yet Strabo admits that Homer may have been referencing Thracians who were said by others to have also led a lifestyle which beckoned such epithets. And Strabo admits that in Geography Book 7, Chapter 3, where he cites Posidonius. While Strabo wavers in this matter and seems to want to believe that Homer indeed knew the Scythians, he also seems to concede that in the environment of the more rugged north, such a lifestyle where men live off their flocks rather than from agriculture is quite natural. And, and that attitude is reflected in geography, book three. I'm sorry, book seven, chapter three, paragraphs eight and nine, and chapter four, paragraph six. Yet while Homer may surely have meant other northern tribes, such as the Thracians or other Slavs, by his use of such epithets, and later poets simply transferred the epithets to the Scythians, the argument is rather irrelevant. Once it is realized that the Cimmerians were simply Scythians by their Akkadian name, something that later Greeks did not explain and certainly did not realize. It is sure that Homer did know the Scythians in the form of that first wave of Cimmerians from Asia who destroyed Phrygia, threatened all of Lydia and Ionia, and also crossed into Europe to inhabit the lands north of Thrace. Seeing then that the Cimmerians and Sake or Scythians are one and the same people in the Eastern inscriptions, 
and that the Greeks at the first had employed the Akkadian name for these people, and only later did they employ the Persian name, and these names are all well documented in those Eastern inscriptions before these people were ever known in the West. The fact that the Scythians originated in Asia, as Diodorus Siculus fully explains, is certainly validated. It should be absolutely accepted. There's far too many witnesses to this, historically. And we will see throughout this series of presentations that they became the Germans. Writing of a period sometime before his own, Herodotus says that the Cimmerians were dispossessed of their Eastern European lands by the Scythians. And he relates a tale wherein the Cimmerians had fled into Asia. When he says into Asia, he means Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, which is Asia Minor today, where Phrygia, Lydia, and Ionia were located to escape them, at which point the Scythians, in pursuit, missed them and poured into Media. This is in the histories, Herodotus' histories, chapter 4. I'm sorry, book 4, chapter 12. Herodotus takes this story from an earlier poet, Aristeus, whose works are now lost. And like his forebear, Aristeus, he is evidently seeking to account for the sudden appearance of these peoples in the Greek world, meaning Anatolia and the Near East. Strabo is a little more practical. Strabo tells us that Aristeus was a Proconesian, the author of the Aramaspian epic, as it is called. A charlatan, if there ever was one. That's in Geography Book 13. And Strabo does us a service because the account supplied by Herodotus from Aristeus is impossible. Diodorus Siculus gives us a much more credible account of Scythian origins. He relates their humble beginnings, as we have already read this evening, along the Araxis River in northern Media, explaining the origins of the various Scythian tribes from this common source, and their spread northward, and both to the, to the east as far as India, and the west as far as the region of Europe, north of Greece and Thrace. These migrations can be and Yahweh willing, they will be in this series, corroborated in many other sources, both historical and archaeological. Diodorus's account is fully cohesive with accounts from the East, such as the ancient Assyrian tablets uncovered by archaeologists in the 19th century, and the testimony of Flavius Josephus in his book's of wars and antiquities of the Judeans. That was the subject of our earlier essay on this topic, 
entitled Classical Records, The Origins of the Scythians, Parthians, and Related Tribes. That is why we consider that essay a prerequisite to understanding these presentations which we are now embarking upon. Contrary to the tale of Herodotus cited above, from other sources, such as Strabo's geography, we learn that the Scythians, led by a certain king, Mattis, had driven the Chimerians, and, and none of the Greek writers realized that the Chimerians were Scythians. You have to have access to those Persian inscriptions to make that connection. We learn that the Scythians, led by a certain King Mattis, had driven the Chimerians out of Anatolia some time after Phrygia had been destroyed. The presence of a town named Sagalassus in northern Pisidia is certainly evidence of Scythians in the region. The Saka, or Saga name, that sound, that syllable, Saga, two syllables actually, right? Saga, Saka, that sound occurs very frequently in names associated with the Scythians. We see that sound in the names of the kings, Arsakes. We see it in the word Masagete, Sakarali, Sakasene. Strabo, in his geography, mentions both Sagalassus and its people, whom he calls the Sagalasses, several times. Rather than the Scythians chasing the Chimerians into Anatolia from the north, as Herodotus alleged, it is much more evident, and may be said with certainty, that the Scythians, the Chimerians being an early name for the first waves of them, had migrated through Anatolia from the east, Writing of his own time. Herodotus mentions Celtica, yet he seems not to know it by the exact location, meaning from the Pyrenees to the Rhine. The original Roman Celtica stretched was all the land from the Pyrenees to the Rhine, north of the Alps. So Herodotus' mention of Celtica is somewhat inaccurate. He states, the later river, meaning the Danube, which the ancient Greeks called Ister, the later river has its source in the country of the Celts, near the city, Pyrenee, and runs through the middle of Europe, dividing it into two portions. The Celts lived beyond the Pillars of Hercules, or Heracles. That's, um, that's language that's used of the Mediterranean itself, and the Pillars of Heracles are the Straits of Gibraltar, or located at the Straits of Gibraltar. The Celts lived beyond the Pillars of Heracles and border on the Canisians, who dwell at the extreme west of Europe. Thus, the Ister flows through the whole of Europe, 
before it finally empties itself into the Euxine, which is the Black Sea, at Istria, one of the colonies of the Malaysians, and it's going to be important later to remember this line, and that's from the Histories, Book 2, Chapter 33. Of course, the Danube runs through most of Europe, but doesn't have its sources nearly as far west as Iberia. By the term, the city Pyrenees, the Pyrenean Mountains may instead have been meant, the Pyrenees. Something being misconstrued by Herodotus in the communication. Yet from this we see that Herodotus knew of a people called Celts dwelling in the west, and he called their land Celtica, near the sources of the Danube which the sources of the Danube would actually be somewhat just north of modern Switzerland. And he knew that they also inhabited Iberia. Later in his history, in Book 4, Herodotus calls those Keynesians Canetes instead, and Rawlinson, George Rawlinson notes that nothing else is known of whom he may have been referring to. Nothing else is known of those people, if indeed they weren't mythical. The German tribes dwelling north of the Danube were originally called by the later Greek writers by the name Galatahi. The word Galatian comes from Galatahi. Strabo, who lived from about 63 BC to 25 AD, says that the Germans, who, though they vary slightly from the Celtic stock, in that they are wilder, taller, and have yellower hair, are in all other respects similar for build habits and modes of life. They are such as I have said, the Celtic are. And I also think that it was for this reason that the Romans assigned to them the name Germani, as though they wished to indicate thereby that they were genuine Galatahi. For the language of the Romans, in the language of the Romans, Germani means genuine. That's in Strabo's Geography, Book 7, Chapter 1. The Loeb Classical Library edition of Strabo, translated by H.L. Jones, offers the following footnote at this passage, where he says, So also Julius Caesar, Tacitus, Pliny, and the ancient writers in general, regarded the Germans as Celts, and then he puts Gauls in parentheses. And he goes on to say, Dr. Richard Braungart has recently published a large work in two volumes in which he ably defends his thesis that the Boii Vindelici 
Raidi, Norichi, Tariski, and other tribes, as shown by their agricultural implements and contrivances, were originally not Celts, but Germans, and in all probability, the ancestors of all Germans. And he makes a citation to a book written in German, published in 1914. I would certainly have some disagreements with Rongard. The fact that Germans were to the Greeks called Galatahi, which is in Latin Gauls, is quite clear. Diodorus Siculus describes the Galatahi who dwell beyond, meaning east of the Rhine, as tall and blonde with very white skin and says that they drank beer made from barley water, in which they washed their honeycombs, which seems to describe an ancient form of mead. These Galatahi used chariots and wore what seems to be a type of tartan. That's in Library of History, Book 5, Chapters 29 and 30. H.L. Jones seems to have accepted Brongott's designation of the Celts as Gauls, distinct from the Germans. And that's where I believe Brongart went wrong. It is more likely the opposite, that the original Roman Gauls were the Greek Galatahi, and that the name Gaul was then applied to the Celts. So Brongart's the part of Brongart's argument where he makes a distinction between Germans and Celts is very good. But where he fails is that he applies the name Gauls to the Celts first, where it actually belonged to the Germans first. That's where he goes wrong. It is much more likely that the original Roman Gauls were the Greek Galatahi, and that the name Gaul was then applied to the Celts, those people already inhabiting Western Europe, as well as many more Gauls moving into Celtica. The land west of the Rhine, which at an even later point caused the Romans to describe the Galatahi east of the Rhine as Germani. Now, this situation is very confused, but even Julius Caesar recorded great numbers of Gauls crossing the Rhine into Celtica in his time and said that he implied that that had been going on for a long time. So as many Galatahi crossed the Rhine, the Celts, the name Celt became interchangeable with the name Gaul, but the name Gaul belonged originally, I believe, east of the Rhine. So the situation is confusing. The name Kel seems not to have originally belonged to the Galatahi. Describing the inhabitants of what is now southern France in the region of modern Narbonne, Strabo says of these people that the men of former times named them 
Celte. And it was from the Celte, I think, these are Strabo's words, that the Galatahi as a whole were called by the Greeks Celti on account of the fame of the Celte. Or so it may also be that the Marseillotes, the people of Marseille, as well as other Greek neighbors, contributed to this result on account of their proximity. So Strabo's saying that this name Celt only belonged to a small portion of the inhabitants of what is now known as France, and that it later became applied to all of the Gauls or Galatahi of France on account of their proximity. That's in Geography, Book 4, Chapter 1. The Massiliotes were Phokian Greek colonists of modern Marseille in France. With this, the earlier Diodorus Siculus, whose writing brings us to about 36 BC, perfectly agrees, stating, and now it will be useful to draw a distinction which is unknown to many. The people who dwell in the interior, above Massilia, those on the slopes of the Alps, and those on this side the Pyrenees Mountains, are called Celts. Whereas the peoples who are established above this land of Celtica, in the parts which stretch to the north, along both the ocean and along the Hercynian Mountain, and all the peoples who come after these, as far as Scythia, are known as Gauls. And the Greek, which Diodorus used, is Galatahi. The Romans, however, include all these nations together under a single name, calling them, one and all, Gauls. So we see that the Celts and the Gauls are originally two different peoples. The Gauls are those who came migrating from Asia along the north, as far as Scythia, as Diodorus says, along the north, and moved into Celtica, so the Romans were calling them all Celts in Celtica, and they, that, that is where the fault lies in the confusion of those names. That's indeed Orsiculus's Library of History, Book 5, Chapter 32. So it is evident that the Celts and Galatahi were at one time distinct terms for somewhat distinct people. Herodotus knew of the Celts, but Herodotus did not use the term Galatahi. Yet at an early time, the terms became synonymous to the Greeks and Romans. Polybius, who wrote in the middle of the 2nd century B.C., over a hundred years before Diodorus Siculus, was already using the terms Celts and Galatahi synonymously, even in the same paragraphs. Throughout his own writings, even Diodorus uses, even though he understands the distinction, Diodorus Siculus uses the two terms 
synonymously and sometimes even in the same paragraphs, while on other occasions he distinguishes between them. Diodorus never used the term Germani or German, but called the tribes that dwelt east of the Rhine, some of which he mentioned by their individual names, Galatahi, where he tells of Julius Caesar's conquest there in his Library of History, again in Book 5. Massalia, or as it was often called, Massilia, is the modern Marseille on the Mediterranean coast. The site was an early Ionian Greek settlement. It was the Phocians who colonized it. The Phocians were Ionians. And it was evidently in proximity to the Celts. Massalia is mentioned by Herodotus and was founded around 600 BC. It is most likely that Herodotus learned about the Celts only from these Spokian Greeks, who had founded Massalia and other Western colonies with much resistance from the rival Phoenicians and Etruscans. While I cannot presently determine with confidence whether Celts were already inhabiting the southern parts of France when the Phocians founded their colonies, and it appears that they may not have been inhabiting the area around Marseille. They certainly were there by Herodotus's time, by 440 BC. In other words, we understand the, the testimony of Strabo that there were Celts in Narbonne, but that testimony is from a period near his own time. It's not from the period when Marseille was actually founded from 600 BC. So there were Celts in the area by Herodotus' time, but we don't know if there were Celts in southern France in 600 BC. It appears there may not have been, at least not to that extent. And so the Greeks and Romans, because the Celts had been around Marseille from at least the time of Herodotus, 440 BC, the Greeks and Romans surely must have been familiar with the Celts around Marseille well before the Galatahi invaded Italy. The Galatahi that invaded Italy were not Celts. There is also recent evidence that the Phocian colony on the Mediterranean coast, the Greek colony, actually had a much further reach into the into the interior of central France than many modern historians assume. There was a um, recent archaeological discovery of iron, an Iron Age tomb in central France, which was loaded with Greco-Roman art and probably dated to the 5th century B.C., where the Galatahi, or Gauls, as he called them in Latin, 
first appeared in northern Italy in the late 5th century B.C., the Roman historian Livy, in his account of their invasions of northern Italy, calls them a strange race, new settlers. That's in his History of Rome, Book 5, Chapter 17. A short time later, after conquering the Etruscans, these Galatahi nearly destroyed Rome, circa 390 B.C. The Romans came very close to defeat at that time. Yet, as Strabo attests that the Romans had done, the Celts around Massilia, like those who were in like those who invaded Rome, were called Gauls by Livy, as he relates the much earlier founding of that city. Now, if the Romans were familiar with the Celts around Massilia when that city was founded, and the Galatahi were Celts, how could Livy consider the Galatahi, who appeared in northern Italy 200 years later, to be a strange race? But that's what he called them. And while Herodotus mentioned the Celts, Cimmerians, and Scythians of Europe, he never used the term Galatahi, and may well have been absolutely ignorant of it. According to the ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon, the term Galatahi does not appear in the Greek language and Greek writing until the 4th century B.C., where it is found in a fragment attributed to Aristotle. Furthermore, it is in the time of Alexander the Great that Theodorus Siculus had said that the Galatahi who lived near the Thracians, had first become known to the Greek world. So with all of this, we see some confusion in the application of the names Celt and Gaul, or Galatahi, from the earliest times. There is one possible solution to the paradox concerning the application of these names as described by the earlier historians, and I'm going to take the liberty to propose that here. The Phoenicians were originally of the same origins as the Germanic tribes, something which we have established in essays presented over the past few years at Christogenia. Classical records and classical and biblical records identifying the Phoenicians, classical records of the origins of the Scythians, Parthians, and related tribes, Herodotus, Scythians, Persians, and prophecy, all help to establish the proofs of that from classical history. Along with the subsequent portions of this current essay, which shall endeavor to establish that German origins are found with the Cimmerians and Scythians, and ultimately with the dispersions of the lost tribes of Israel which were never lost. 
The Phoenicians, as described by the tra Greek tragic poets and others, such as the Roman poet Virgil, were typically also fair and blonde, and they settled the coasts and river valleys of Western Europe for several centuries before the arrival of the Greeks in that region. A Phoenician presence on the coasts, as well as the interiors of Iberia and Britain, where they mine metals such as tin and silver, can be established as having existed long before the Greeks and Romans began writing of the Celts, Galatahi, and Gauls. So it is plausible that with these people lies the origin of the original Celte or Celti. These people are identified as proto-Celts by modern archaeologists, at least on many of the occasions where proto-Celts are identified. Once the proto-Celts had become known to the Greeks and Romans, the tribes of the Galatahi began immigrating across the Rhine, and they were called by that same name, Celts, since the Greeks may have either imagined them to be related or similar, or perhaps did not know them well enough to distinguish between them. In any event, they had no compunction in lumping Celts and Gauls together and using the names interchangeably from early times in reference to the Galatahi who were west of the Rhine. While this hypothesis may be conjectural, it does agree with the testimonies of Strabo regarding the names Celte and Celti, and of Diodorus regarding the distinction between Celts and Galatahi, which we have cited and explained above. What all this has to do with the Cimmerians and the Scythians shall hopefully become evident in the parts of this essay which follow, because it certainly is relevant, and it certainly should be remembered by anybody who wants to understand this information. Earlier on, we saw a mention of Herodotus, in Herodotus, I'm sorry, of Istria, on the Danube River at the entrance to the Caspian Sea, and he called it one of the colonies of the Malaysians. And he described it as being right, I'm sorry, right at the location where the Danube empties into the Black Sea. The Danube River was the northern border, it was generally considered to be the northern border of Thrace in that eastern expanse of the Danube. Yet Herodotus never mentioned the Galatahi. If the Galatahi were there in the days of Herodotus, then Diodorus Siculus could never have said of the Galatahi who neighbored the Thracians that they had not become known to the Greek world until the time of Alexander the Great. Furthermore, this is not even a hundred years after the Galatahi had first become known to the Romans. According to Livy, which was descriptive of the time in which they invaded Italy, 
So the Galatahi were relative newcomers to both the Greeks and the Romans in the 4th century B.C. When the name first appears in Greek literature, even though by this time both the Greeks and Romans had been exploring their own environs for nearly a thousand years. And, and that's what's really not very well understood about people that attempt to create a narrative from all of these historical records. The Greeks were constant travelers. They were constantly on the search for arable land, salt, which was extremely important in the ancient world, and precious metals. The Romans also. There were um, one um, one example is Salzburg in Austria, or Halsburg, I believe it was eventually called. There were um, Greek and Roman salt mines along the Danube for many centuries before Christ. They were constantly in search of the precious things that they needed in order for their society to function properly. They were constantly in search of certain resources and raw materials. They explored, the Romans explored thoroughly the lands to the north. If there were Galatahi or Germans living there, they'd have known about it long before 390 B.C., Livy would have never been able to call them a strange new race. In other places, which we will get to later in this presentation, Herodotus says that in his time, the lands above the Danube were virtually, not completely, but pretty much empty, uninhabited, the lands north of the Danube in modern Austria-Hungary, the Ukraine pretty much uninhabited in the time of Herodotus. He was at Istria. He visited Istria in preparation for his histories. And he would have known if there were Galatahi there. He would have known if there were Germanic tribes north of the Danube. Back to the name Gaul or the name Galatahi. Perhaps coincidentally, the smaller island northwest of Malta, south of Sicily, which was colonized by the Phoenicians, Diodorus Siculus calls that island Gaulus, G-A-U-L-O-S, in his Library of History in Book 5. The word Gaulus refers to a bucket in Latin. The name Galatahi may very well, since it doesn't appear until the 4th century, may very well come from the Greek word for milk, gala. As the earlier Greek poets poked fun at the Scythians and the other northern tribes for being milk drinkers. We'll discuss these labels 
further in part two of this series. In this first segment of our German Origin series, it's really all about names here, right? We hope to have laid some groundwork by providing an understanding to some degree of when certain names appeared in reference to the Germanic tribes of Europe. And to whom those names had originally referred. For that endeavor, there are several things which we, which we hope to have established. We hope to have established the dating of Homer. And that's important. Because therefore, the earliest references to any of these people in Greek literature, because Homer is acknowledged by all as the beginning of Greek literature, is then in accord so that the Greek records do not conflict with our identity of the origins of the Chimerians. Later, we will assert that the Chimerians are from the deportations of the ancient Israelites. There are some clowns that try to, and, and these are university clowns, that try to push Homer back to 800 B.C. If Homer really wrote in 800 B.C. and mentioned the Chimerians, well, then, of course, the Chimerians are not from the Assyrian captivity of Israel. It's that simple. However, when we get to discussing the Assyrian records, we will see that the Chimerians certainly are from the captivities of Israel. So Homer can't be 800 B.C. Of course, the, the people who um, try to make claims as ludicrous of that are probably unaware of our Christian Israel contention. We will assert that the Chimerians are from the deportations of the ancient Israelites provide many more proofs that they are and that the Chimerians first appear in the Greek world at least 50 years after the resettlement of the first Israelites to the north by the Assyrians. This is understood if we understand that Homer flourished sometime after 680 B.C. So our contentions are entirely plausible from this perspective. We also hope to have established the appearance in Europe and the origin of the Chimerians, along with the appearance and origin of the Sakian Scythians, along with the fact that all of these names referred to the same people. When they appeared in the West, the Greeks called them by the name of the principal languages of the East at the time of their appearance. In the Assyrian period, they were Chimerians, and in the Persian period, they were Sake and Scythians. This is proven in the Eastern inscriptions, even though the Greek writers themselves did not all have that understanding, and therefore, they attempted to distinguish these people. We will discuss these things further on later in this series. 
We also hope to have established the earliest usage of the name Galatahi and when and where the Galatahi were first said to appear in Europe, which should establish that this name was only a later name for the same Scythians, and we will discuss that to a much greater degree as this series unfolds. Doing this, we had to show that the Galatahi were not originally the same as the Celts, which is also something we hope to have established from the witness of Diodorus Siculus. We also have shown that the name for the, the name for the Germans was originally applied because the Romans believed that the Germans were the authentic or genuine Galatahi because the word Germani means genuine. We will continue to demonstrate the facts of these assertions in future segments of the series, adding many other witnesses from the classical histories to our testimony. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night.